The age of the personal check is coming to a close. While tools such as Interact eTransfer have largely taken their place for personal use, many businesses are still reliant on checks. In fact, 54% of businesses believe they are spending too much time on payment processing. What will it take for companies to finally ditch the check? Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Welcome to Quality Content on the 2020 Network presented by Interact. I'm your host, Alex Patterson. Today in the show, I'm talking to my friend, Katie Gibbs. And when we first conceived the kinds of people we wanted to feature on quality content, we agreed that some of them our listeners would know, and some of them our listeners should get to know. Katie, I think, is definitely someone you should get to know. She's a fellow executive director of a not-for-profit. Hers is called Evidence for Democracy, or E4D. And if that sounds wonky, well, yeah, that's kind of the point. Founded in 2013 amid protests from Canada's scientific community who argued that the federal government was abandoning its commitments to evidence-based policymaking, the issues that E4D dealt with then feel eerily like a precursor to the broader societal conversation we're having now about misinformation. And as such, Katie now finds herself with a network of academics and researchers and scientists and experts across the country all collectively asking the same question. How do we agree upon a common set of facts? So today on the show, we are literally talking about the quality of our content, the distinctions we need to make between what's true and false, how to maintain good information hygiene, and where we might feel a little bit hopeful about the state of our public discourse after all. I think you'll enjoy it. I started thinking a little bit about how and when your organization was founded, mm-hmm. and it struck me that... It's almost, it was almost weirdly prophetic for where we find ourselves right now. So I think a really good place to start would be to ask you, what does Evidence for Democracy do? And why was it founded? And what were the circumstances under which it was decided <laughs> yeah. that an organization like E4D needs yeah. to exist? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot to unpack. And I think you're right. It's almost like this weird situation where the organization seems more fitting today than even when we founded. Um, so so Evidence for Democracy is a nonprofit organization. Our sort of like big blue sky mission is to get the government to make transparent evidence-based decisions which sounds like a pretty good thing that That's a really, <laughs> no one could disagree with. <laughs> that looks really good on the back yeah, of a business card. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we we work on issues around making sure that research is well-funded, openly communicated to the public, and used in decision-making. Um, we founded in 2013, and we sort of grew as an organization out of a large scientist protest. So... This was the the Harper during the Harper era. Um, there were a lot of policies that the science community was not thrilled with, and I was a PhD student at the time in biology. And so, in 2012, we decided to organize a protest to sort of show that the science community was not a fan of the policies that were happening at the time. I remember the coverage around that. Like, I it, it, it was, was insane. Well, it, it it scaled really, really quickly mm-hmm. because it was a it, – it felt like it was the 
culmination of kind of something that was a low simmer for a while, right? Which is that sort of like that steady erosion of Mm -hmm. um, not supporting evidence-based policy Mm -hmm. and which was kind of a hallmark of, that was something that progressives and uh, I actually think, you know, a little bit more centrist people would Mm -hmm. levy at the Harper government and say like, you know, you're not supporting evidence-based policymaking. And then lo and behold, you have that nice media narrative of like lab coats picketing um, for their their (laughs) livelihood. Yeah. Well, and I think it it wasn't for their livelihood. I think that is actually what is really interesting is like a lot of people think of the narrative as sort of scientists protesting for more science funding. But I think the actual driver for most scientists and researchers is more about the societal use of science and evidence than it is about, you know, how much funding they're getting for their work. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was at the time we were expecting like a few hundred people is what we would have thought was like a success that day and ended up getting thousands. And we're very shocked both at the attendance and the, the media coverage that grew out of it. And then, you know, after that, there was no immediate plans to form an organization, but we kept hearing from scientists who said, you know, that was the first time I've ever participated in a protest. Like it felt, it felt amazing. <laughs> they all broke bad. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Like there was this like sense of like, it was the first time ever really doing something like that. And so they kept, you know, coming to me being like, what's next? And at the time I was like, uh, I don't know. Um, but then, you know, we started to look into it and there were kind of similar organizations in other countries like the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and just personally, I had just finished and, you know, was kind of trying to find a job that let me combine my interest in science and policy and campaigning. And there weren't any existing jobs. So it just kind of seemed like everything like lined up to be like, well, I will, you know, try creating this organization. So you invented your own job. Like basically, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very 21st century thing to do. Yes. I, I am technically a millennial. Yes. <laughs> so it makes sense. Um, so then, uh, you know, that's 2013. We're, we're six years in now. It's 2019. You've got a change in government. Um, a, a, and by the way, a, a government that for all of its faults and its nicks and its bruises is a government that I think has tried to communicate pretty clearly that science matters, mm-hmm. that uh, evidence matters, and has tried to re-engage with and reinvigorate the public service. There's a lot of mm-hmm. there's a lot of issues there, right? There's there there's sort of that bureaucratic intransigence, like public yeah. service critical thinking is a muscle, and if you don't use mm-hmm. it, it atrophies, and it takes time to build that back up again. But you've got a pretty engaged federal government right now. Um, what is that working relationship been like, and what has that meant to the sort of stakeholders in the community that you speak to? Yeah, well, I think there was absolutely a shift. And I think it's also important to note that that didn't just happen by chance. You know, a lot of the work that the science community did around the last election was really pushing to make science an election issue for the first time. And I think they successfully put enough pressure on the liberals that they, you know, actually kind of added that really explicitly 
to their platform and to their communications, you know, sort of, they really adopted that, which was great to see. And certainly there's no doubt that things um, are better now for science than they were under the Harper government. Um, But there's still more to do. I think there's still been a number of cases where the science community has kind of had to like flex their advocacy muscle um, which has been an interesting experience. Like I think we learned that we, you still kind of have to put some pressure on, even on a, you know, friendly government in order to make the voice of the science community heard among all of the other, you know, interests that are vying for government attention. But it strikes me that, and I, this, this may be wrong, but it, it strikes me that maybe your your advocacy target or your the the person or set of people or institution that you are campaigning not against but at least advocating in front of used to be the government of Canada right and and yes absolutely mm-hmm. you have to sort of keep your uh, your foot on the gas to make sure that mm-hmm. you know they're staying within the the parameters that we expect of them but it's 2019 we are um steeped in an era of mis- misinformation. Mm-hmm. We are steeped in an era of, um, of, of fake news and lots of concerns about what people believe as acceptable and as truth. Yeah. So I'm wondering, it's like, has your target weirdly shifted away mm-hmm. from like the government of Canada to like just the general public? Yeah. So we have kind of shifted. We, you know, we used to do sort of more of the like actual science policy type campaigns, like very wonky, very like only interested to people in the research community. And so we still do some of that for sure. But we have kind of taken on this, you know, sort of new, new file, you could say, which is around the misinformation issue. Um, We, I just, you know, got off of doing a webinar on kind of the science behind misinformation and what are evidence-based approaches to fighting it. Particularly for us, I think it's interesting since most of our kind of constituency are scientists. And I see them, I'm really interested in them as sort of like, I see them as like the people like leading, like the rebellion of like fighting for truth you know, as we are, we seem to be almost in a moment where we're having like a cultural referendum on whether or not truth matters, which is a little terrifying to me as a scientist, but who else to like lead the charge against that than scientists? I mean, their truth is so core to not only their jobs, but for most of them, it's core to their, their values and beliefs. Do you use the word, use the term uh, misinformation? Do you use the term fake news? No. I've said multiple times on this podcast that I don't like using the word term fake news and like it just slips out. And then I do (laughs) because it's just like, I'm so dissolved in it. Um, I like, I mean, the reason I don't like it is because I think it normalizes something that the president of the United States wants to be normalized and it's just not normal. For you, what is information? What is misinformation? Like, how do you classify it? Uh, how do you identify it? Like, you know, you you've you've just did a webinar on it. Maybe I'm asking you to give like a pricey of your your, yeah, your webinar. Well, I think I think it is also worth going back to the fake news issue because there's actually science behind not using it. Please tell me. Yeah. So there's two issues with it. One, people use it for a whole host of different meanings, and so it's just 
confusing and inaccurate is the first reason not to use it. But there's actually been studies that have shown that exposure to the term reduces people's trust in the mainstream media. Hmm. And it makes sense, right? Because right. this is you know, like as much as my organization promotes evidence-based decision-making, we also understand the science behind how we think and accept that we are not rational beings. Like we do not actually, we're not very good at taking in information and making rational decisions. And so things like repeated exposure to a term like fake news actually does erode our trust in the news. Because the argument against media is basically embedded and baked into those two little words. Exactly. Right. Okay. Exactly. And so so for you, for, for misinformation, um, where... Where do you monitor it? Where do you look for it? And and what are you doing right now to help prepare people? Because we, it's often said, we are in an election year. Mm-hmm. It's sort of that hackneyed thing that we all say. Mm-hmm. It, it's an election year, and somehow that means that things are supposed to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, right? I, I mean, it, it, I think what it does connote is that it's a year where a lot of stuff's going to be thrown at us that's uh, attempting to influence our decisions either at the ballot box mm-hmm. or um, in in our sort of general attitudes towards many facets of public life. So when it comes back to teaching people about misinformation, where do you start? Well, I mean, I think that is interesting because we are focusing on individuals. Okay. Um, partly because I think like long-term this issue of um, too much information and misinformation coming at us is not going away. Like, I don't think that is just no, a, the taps, a moment the taps that are we're open. having yes. right yeah. now. It's yeah. only something that is going to get worse. And ultimately, you know, the government tends to lag so far behind technology with regard to regulation that, you know, I do think the government needs to do more to regulate social media companies, for example, but they're always going to be lagging behind and new technologies are going to come. And so, you know, I do see it as the root of the problem is is individuals and increasing their level of ability to to understand the information coming at them. But it's more than that. Like the things we talked about in our webinar were sort of like what to do if you've accidentally shared something. Because Interesting. and the examples I gave were that I've seen like professors that I am friends with on Facebook share misinformation. So I think part of it is like breaking that down, that it's not just I think we have some like stigmas on who falls for this, that it is, mm. you know, maybe uneducated people, that it is people on the right side of the political spectrum. It's and your, really it's your all, Republican aunts. And, yeah, yeah, this exactly. is what we think. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, first, I think first of all is just accepting that we are all um, susceptible to it and we all do it. And there's those sort of like steps around simple things like, you know, double checking your sources before you post something online and that kind of thing. Um, but I think, I think there's also the issue of we're at a moment where most of the information, misinformation is actually coming from politicians and elected figures. So I was just at, um, a big science conference in the U S last week, and I went to a session from one of the leading experts who studies fake news 
actual fake news in this case, meaning like misleading um, articles that look like news articles, but they're completely fake. That is the proper. That's the, the that's the, those. Yes. That's the fence where exactly. that term is allowed to be exactly. used. Exactly. Got it. Okay. And you know he he studies that, and basically his conclusion of his talk was the the impacts of f- actual fake news are minuscule compared to the misinformation coming out of politicians' mouths, like Trump, obviously. And so I think, you know, I can't help but then think of the Ontario issues that we're facing. And I think a great example was um, Premier Ford's comments about carbon pricing causing a recession. So for me, it's, it's more, there's both that element of like teaching individuals how to combat it. But I think it's also that we need to actually think about misinformation as, as including politicians saying things that is not true. And I feel like we don't always think of that as misinformation. We think it is like the fake news that someone in Russia is making, for example. Or we tend to think of it in that traditional uh, political strategist realm of like spin, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like lying and saying things that aren't true is, is maybe might have a spin effect, but it's not spin. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think using those sort of outdated, Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, political, mm-hmm. uh, strategist frame is not helpful. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder like, so in terms of like teaching people how to be vigilant and teaching people to have like good information hygiene, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm wondering like, do you at all encourage people to like think like a scientist? Like, is there, is there a sort of a, a framework of thought that you encourage people to, um, to walk through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's simple, critical thinking skills of, but I think the first steps are that like acknowledging that you have a bias. And really, I'm not sure everyone understands that that's really what the scientific method is about. It's not that scientists as people are not biased because they're human, they have their own biases and values just like everybody else. That's the whole point of the scientific method is sort of like a systematic way to weed out and tease out your bias so that it doesn't impact the final results. And so, of course, that's something that we can all do in our daily lives. And it starts mostly just by questioning yourself and understanding that you're susceptible, that we all do things like use confirmation bias, where we sort of inherently um, elevate you know, new information that confirms our beliefs and we inherently discount information that goes against our beliefs. So it's mostly just about knowing that that is how your brain works and that you have to choose to fight against it. And once you make that choice, it's pretty easy stuff. Like we all know how to Google. Like it's not, it's not actually hard to do like the fact checking and the double checking. It's just about taking that moment to do it. You have to want to do it, right? You have to engage in that stuff in good faith. Well, yeah. And I think, I think the good faith is a good, is a really good thing to bring up. Cause I do think that that is a huge element here. Um, you know, for people who really care about being evidence driven in what they share and in their, um, opinions and positions on issues, it's, it's not that hard to do. 
the the challenge is wanting to do it. I mean, Twitter is just a giant confer- perpetual confirmation bias machine, right? <laughs> it's yeah. it, I, 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 depending I, on who you follow. I, I, I love it and I hate it. Um, so I, the the other the thing that I, I was hoping that we could we could talk a little bit about is I went to a conference in Toronto. You happened to be there. Yes. Uh, it was the Democracy Exchange mm-hmm. conference. One of the one of the sessions there was chaired by Maria Rasa, uh, who is the founder and the driving force behind Rappler uh, in the Philippines, which is a media outlet that has really done like incredible work at uh, covering uh, Duterte's regime. And one of the <laughs> like really concerning and like the room kind of went like silent uh, when she brought it up was that like if if you think that your nice, kind, respectable, open, strong institution country can't turn on a dime and slip into uh, a, a really scary place where, you know, authoritarianism and, and you know, lack of faith in institutions, you know, really runs rampant um, – if you think that that can't happen where you are, um, you're wrong. And so I'm wondering, it's a, it's a question that I had for Serata Perry, who was in our mm-hmm. space, uh, not too, too long ago, who used to be a speechwriter for president Obama. And I'm interested in your take on this. Like what are some like canaries in the coal mine, mm-hmm. um, that we should sort of be vigilantly like on the lookout for here in Canada. And I say this, you know, on the, uh, on the heels of the United We Roll mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, protest that uh, that mm-hmm. rolled into Ottawa and blasted air horns outside of our office window, and um, and the 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 and complex does the leader com- of the opposition speaking at that rally count uh, as a canary. There, yeah, <laughs> does 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 uh, in, uh, potential incitements for violence uh, from a uh, senator count? Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I, so I, I, I think you get where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. Is that like, are there things that we sort of are already experiencing and do, are we well enough equipped with the tools that we have as a, uh, a country that sort of relatively respects its institutions to combat that? It's a big uh, question. That's a tough one. Well, it's and a tough I, one because I mean, I it personally gets, yeah. go, I mean, I personally go back and forth on that a lot. So on one hand, there's a lot to be worried about, but on the other hand, all of the sort of data from Canada shows us to be, I would say, more resilient than other countries. So This is good, because my last question was going to be like, can we end on a hopeful note? <laughs> yeah, so this okay. is good. So okay, maybe so let's I'll do give that. the, yeah, yeah, the worrisome yeah. things first. Yeah. I mean, I think, so for me, it does go back to that issue of misinformation, particularly coming from politicians, that is concerning to me. And, you know, particularly if you look at Trump and the degree to which he lies... And for some reason, we have a hard time calling politicians liars. Like, even I have a hard time saying it. But I think, you know... They it feels l- like a threshold to cross. It does. And I think that's kind of part of the problem, that I'm, I don't understand why it is so hard when they are clearly lying. Um, but I think, you know, some the data showed that in 2018, he spoke something like on average of 15 mistruths a day over 2018. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. So to me, that's so that's so scary for so many reasons. I mean, one, there's this fact that it, our democracy, and this is, I mean, our organization is called Evidence for Democracy. So of course, this is what we're all about. But the democracy really does require that we have a shared truth. Like it really doesn't work if you get to a point where 
you have two different groups that have completely different sets of realities. Like, democracy works great if we, when we disagree on policy, that's fine. We can have arguments, we can disagree, we can have different values, different beliefs, but there has to be some, like, foundational set of truth there that binds us together in the same reality. Otherwise, it really doesn't work. And so it's any signs to me that we are going in that direction. And certainly, um, you know, I think the Ford government here and some of the blatant lying, um, like the claim about carbon pricing causing a recession and, you know, the way we've seen other conservatives sort of pick that up, that's absolutely worrying to me. Um, you know, the state of the media is not great in Canada. And, you know, I certainly don't have any answers there to that problem, but that is concerning to me too. Um, but shifting to the hopeful side of things, you know, almost any poll that has come out recently shows that Canadians do still have strong trust in our institutions. We still um, value expertise. Um, we have a high trust in scientists and in experts, so we don't see that same sort of um, like anti-expert, anti-elite sentiment um, that you do in in the U.S. and other places. So, you know, wherever there's been separate data for Canada and the U.S., it's telling very different stories. And so I am always like personally torn of, you know, do I be happy and thankful that it, it seems so different here than it is there? Or, you know, should we be scared that we're going in that direction? And And I think it's both. You know, we there does seem to be a, you know, a lot of sort of global forces around increasing populism and, you know, erosion of truth and post-truth era and all those things. And I think we are more resilient than other places, but how resilient? And if those international forces, you know, continue and keep growing stronger, how much longer can we hold off of them coming here? So I think it's, it is both. It's being, you know, I am very optimistic and thankful to be Canadian, um, but still, you know, want to be vigilant about doing what we can to proactively stop those movements from taking hold here. Well, one thing that makes me really confident is that there is a group like Evidence for Democracy and a, a united and um, a vigilant group of scientists and researchers who are vigorously uh, defending the truth and, and continuing their good work. So um, where can people engage with you online or your organization online if they want to follow up? Yeah, so our website is a good place to start, evidenceforDemocracy.ca. You can sign up for our email list. And we're also on Twitter at E4DCA. And you can also find me at Katie Gibbs on Twitter. Perfect. Katie Gibbs, thank you very much. Thank you. Quality content is hosted by me, Alex Patterson. My senior producer is Sarah Turnbull. My editor is Aaron Reynolds. And Mira Ahmad makes everything in our lives just a little easier. The 2020 Network is presented by Interact and is a production of Canada 2020, Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps more curious and engaged listeners like yourselves find us. As well, if you'd like to give us some feedback on how we're doing, what you like, what you don't like, new episode or guest ideas, we're listening. I am at alex at canada2020.ca. 
A few organizational announcements for you. First and foremost, Canada 2020 is launching a new initiative called No Second Chances, where we take a look at the rise and fall of Canada's 12 female first ministers. That's right, there have only ever been 12 in Canada's history. We're launching the project on International Women's Day in Ottawa, so head to Canada2020.ca to learn about how you can get involved. Next, I want to tell you about our Canada Food Brand Project. It's a cross-country initiative aimed at understanding what stands behind Canada's food brand. Is it trust, sustainability, quality, something else? It's an interesting and timely exploration of one of Canada's major economic drivers. So if you care about Canada's agri-food sector or you want to learn more about it, you can follow our work at canada2020.ca slash canadafoodbrand. And finally, we've got a bunch of free programming going on in our studio space in Ottawa over the next few months. For a full list of what's scheduled, go to our website and be sure that your name is on our mailing list. I keep telling you to do this. We often go to those people first with events and special announcements. That's it for me. Thanks very much for listening. Canada has welcomed the digital economy like few other countries but we are still reliant on physical identity documents to access government services or complete high-value transactions. Interact is working to address this gap and make a secure, convenient, and privacy-enhancing digital ID ecosystem a reality for Canadians. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.